All right, turn, if you will, to Exodus 34. This is the first Sunday of the month, and so um, in going along with communion, we keep the kids in for this month for an entire service. None of the kids are celebrating about that, apparently. <laughs> I know my kids probably aren't. All right, Exodus 34. It says in verse 5 of Exodus 34, this is after um, Moses had come down and had already received the Ten Commandments, um, destroys the first set of Ten Commandments. So he gets a second set of Ten Commandments, and he had pleaded with the Lord. He says, show me your glory. So the Lord um, agrees. In verse 5 it says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third in the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Now this has been described as as Israel's article of faith, a creed, if you will. And the importance of this passage as a foundation for our theology is evidenced by the fact that this statement is repeated many times in the Old Testament. We see it in Numbers, Nehemiah, a few times in the Psalms, Jeremiah, Joel, Jonah, it's also referenced in Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, Lamentations, Daniel, Nahum, all over, really. This is key. And the biblical writers regarded this as a foundational statement about God. And, and catch this. This is God's description of himself. Right? This isn't um, someone writing about God. This is God himself stating what he believes. And what he believes is true, right? So here we have a description of God that he himself gives to us. It's as if Moses said, God, would you describe yourself to me? And this is the Lord's response. So what do we see here? Well, we actually see quite a bit. But we see, I would say, love with justice. And you really can't have the one without the other. God is compelled of his own desire to show mercy, delay punishment, and forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. But I want you to notice something here. When does this take place? After the Israelites had rebelled with the golden calf. Right after. So they just go through this horrible event. God was upset. Moses was upset. And Moses is like, I want to know who you really are. And how did he describe himself? Five key attributes. Merciful. Gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. And abounding in faithfulness. What I want to look at specifically is the word translated in various ways. Uh, the, the ESV says steadfast love. I think the NIV just says love. The NAS says loving kindness, and the New King James says goodness. That's the word I'd like to focus on here. 
Um, this is an important Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word hesed, H-E-S-E-D. And I'd like to look at it because um, this word gives us an understanding of God that is packed with meaning. And I want us to get a fuller and complete picture of its use throughout Scripture. In fact, that's, I mentioned it last week when I gave our, our worship exhortation, and I, I said I was going to do it, and I was speaking this week, so I wanted to do it. So we're going to do it. Um, it's a very strong Hebrew word that has a range of meanings, but all those meanings, when you're doing word studies, whether it's in the Greek or the Hebrew, um, a word can mean a certain thing in a particular context and maybe not something else in a different context. The context is always important to decide um, in helping translate what that word particularly means. But here, um, it has a range of meanings, but it means like all these things at once. So here's what, um, here's what it means. Loyal devotion, kindness, steadfast love, faithfulness, goodness, self-giving love. And it's not, a, it's not a word that's used indiscriminately of kindness in general. Uh, the word is used only in cases where there is some recognized tie between the parties concerned. In fact, the element of covenant actually plays into it. Uh, because this word is invested with so much meaning, it's been translated by various versions in different ways. Each one is trying to capture the precise meaning of the word. And in fact, um, probably no translation consistently translates it throughout their translation. They might choose one word to use maybe 60 to 70% of the time, but then in various contexts, they'll use um, other shades of, of meaning for translating that word. Uh, so the ESV commonly uses steadfast love, if you're reading in your Bibles in the Old Testament. The NASB commonly uses loving kindness. The NIV um, simply uses love. And the New King James um, uses mercy or loving kindness. Um, now, while they're not always consistent in translating it, what they're trying to get at is um, helping us understand the fullness of this word, and that's why there are so many words used to translate this particular word. Um, in fact, some theologians have argued for creating various new words or a combination of words in the English language to translate this Hebrew word because they believe it is so um, complex. That's kind of what the ESV did because they used steadfast love. They used two English words to translate one Hebrew word. They're trying to get more of the fullness there. Uh, the term that the NESB uses, loving kindness, was actually a term that a Bible translator created. Miles Cover Coverdale, back in 1535, when he was translating his version of the Bible, coined this term, loving kindness. And now the NESB um, picks it up. Where, where else do we see this word has to appear in Scripture? Well, it appears about 250 times. We're going to look at just a handful. So let's start in Genesis 19. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels are sent by God to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, Abraham had already pleaded for the city, and um, God spares the righteous, which it, we find out there's only a handful, if that. So in Genesis 19... In verse 17, it says, And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. This is the angel talking. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. 
Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. So, so Lot sensed that his life was at stake, and he could have died, but what does he say? You have shown me great kindness. That's that Hebrew word again, hesed. And probably what I'll do, because each translation uses a different word most of the time, is I'm just going to use that Hebrew word hesed whenever I'm reading a various passage and that word appears, okay? Then you can see how your Bible, your particular version, uh, translates it. So a lot of senses his life is at stake, and he could have died, but instead was rescued. And what does he call that? Great hesed. We see this also in the life of Joseph in Genesis 39. So Joseph is wrongly accused of mistreating his master's wife. And it says in verse 20, And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him hesed and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So in spite of this horrible situation, that, and Joseph's wrongly accused, and he gets put into this situation, in the midst of that situation, God shows Joseph hesed. Ezra says a similar thing if you turn to Ezra 7. Ezra wants to return to Jerusalem from captivity, and Artaxerxes um, not only agrees to it, uh, he basically says, give Ezra whatever he needs to make this uh, trip to Jerusalem successful. So Ezra says uh, in verse 27 of Ezra 7, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his hesed before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. How is he receiving Hesed? Through the favor that God gave him in the eyes of the king. Look at Daniel, chapter 1. Daniel's also in captivity. And it says in verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not despile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Chapter 1. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel hesed and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So over and over again we see hesed on display. Where is it occurring? Between God and his people. So we see this love, favor, kindness, beneficence, graciousness being given to God's people. And here's the thing. Even when Hesed is undeserved, it's still given. Did the rebellious Israelites deserve Hesed? No. But it was given to them. Did Ezra or Daniel, did they deserve it? No. But it was given to them. But I want you to notice something. When Hesed is given, it requires a response. 
Hesed requires a response. If you turn to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, you'll see this. In verse 3, he says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing hesed to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, as God gives his hesed, he looks for a response from us. And if you respond faithfully, what happens? You continue to get the hesed. Showing hesed to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's what you get. Look a little further in Deuteronomy chapter 7. In verse 6 he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and hesed with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He's giving us hesed, and he expects obedience in return. When God gives us hesed, he looks to see how he will respond, and he wants us to respond favorably to him. We see again that hint of the covenant aspect of hesed here in verse 9 because it says he keeps covenant and steadfast love and hesed with those who love him. Well, as God gives hesed to us and wants us to respond favorably to him, he also wants us to give it to others. And there is an entire book of the Old Testament that focuses on hesed. It is the book of Ruth. And if you don't understand this concept of hesed, you won't get the fullness out of Ruth that you could. So here we see in the book of Ruth, hesed in action. Turn there, if you will. It's towards the beginning of your Bible. Joshua judges Ruth. Hesed shows itself in people's lives through their interactions with others. Hesed shows itself in people's lives through their interactions with others. In other words, you see Hesed exemplified in people's lives through their actions. We see this at the very beginning of the book of Ruth. What happens? Naomi ends up becoming a widow. Her husband passed away after he took them out of the land of Israel. What happens to uh, her daughters-in-laws? Both their husbands pass away. So it says in verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, 
return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal hesed with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So she's saying, look, I want God to give you hesed because you've already shown me hesed. You've been faithful. You could have left. You don't owe me anything. I'm just your mother-in-law. But you've been faithful and you've stayed with me this time. But, but Ruth, she steps it up even more. Right? Naomi's already said you've shown me hesed, but what does she do? Verse 16, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now that's Hesed. That's Hesed. And the entire story of Ruth is an unraveling of her initial faith, of her initial commitment, of her initial loyal devotion to Naomi. And what we see unrolled is Hesed repeatedly. So they end up back in Israel. What does Ruth do? She ends up going and gleaning. And we start to see glimpses of Hesed. The word itself is used a few times. So in Ruth 2, verse 8, Boaz enters the scene a few verses earlier. He says to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. What is he doing? He's protecting her. At this point, we're not even sure if he knows that there's a relational connection, that they're relatives, basically. But he is protecting her. We are seeing a glimpse here of Hesed. Continuing on, what does Boaz do in verse 11? He commends her. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Again, the word isn't specifically used here, but it's playing back on what Naomi originally said. You have shown me Hesed. What is Boaz doing? He's affirming it. You do have the Hesed, and you're living it out, and you're continuing to live it out. We see another glimpse of Hesed in the life of Boaz. He says in verse 16, uh, verse 15, let's start. He instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Now, Old Testament law required that if anything basically fell off the wagon as as you were reaping and harvesting, you had to leave it there, and that was for the poor. And the poor, they actually had to work to receive something, but they could go into the fields after the reapers and the harvesters and pick up what was on the ground. Anything that fell off, also the edges of the field were supposed to left, were supposed to be left unharvested so the poor could get it there. But what Boaz here is saying, take some out. Make sure she has plenty, basically. So Hesed on display. So when Naomi hears of this in verse 20, here's her response. May he be blessed by the Lord, 
whose hesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. May he be blessed by the Lord, whose hesed has not forsaken the living or the dead. Here's hesed again on display. And then we see a glimpse of it again as the story wraps up. If you don't know the story, you need to read it. I think the book of Ruth is only about 75 verses, so you could probably read it in about 10 or 15 minutes. But there's some drama at the end of chapter 3, the beginning of verse 4. Boaz and Ruth end up getting together and getting married. And what Naomi was once in despair, she is now blessed. The woman said in verse 14 to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Over and over we see this concept of hesed being played out. Commentators are sometimes have been puzzled. Is What's this little book doing in the Bible? Like, what, what do we learn from it? Well, we get the, the lineage of, of David, which also ends up being the lineage of Jesus, right? Um, but, but what's its importance? What it's showing, most agree, is hesed living as opposed to regular living. Because there's two um, groups of people being contrasted in here. Uh, the first is Ruth versus um, her sister-in-law, Orpah. And then the second is Boaz with um, the, kinsman, the unnamed kinsman redeemer. First, let's, let's run through what we see Hesed first, and then we're going to compare those two parties. Um, Hesed and Ruth. Ruth refuses to abandon the widow. Boaz goes beyond obligation to show kindness to Ruth. Naomi, we forget about her a little bit, but she's in this story. She seeks a way to help Ruth. Ruth offers her, offers, um, goes to Boaz and encourages him to become her redeemer. Boaz extends his care to Ruth and Naomi. Boaz goes beyond this and even marries Ruth, which he didn't have to do. The community acts, the entire community acts with Hesed. How? They affirm the marriage. This Hesed heals Moabite Israelite relations in one small circle of people. And Hesed is a light in the dark days of the judges in one place in Israel. And this chain of Hesed that goes throughout this book leads to the birth of David and ultimately to the Messiah. This doesn't even mention the Hesed that God displays throughout the story. Yeah, he's kind of being woven in sort of in the background, but the writer makes clear that God himself is practicing hesed throughout the story. And we could list multiple things. He visits his people, it says. The famine ends. Safe travel back to Jerusalem. God is gracious to lead Ruth to Boaz's field. On and on and on and on, God himself is practicing hesed. So look at Ruth and and Orpah for a second. Um, Orpah did nothing wrong when she decided not to go on with Naomi back to her land. There's nothing wrong with that. Ruth could have made the same decision, right? 
She wouldn't have been wrong to do that. But, but that's really the point with Hesed, is it, it goes above and beyond the call of duty. It doesn't just do the normal or the average. It goes above. There's a commitment, a faithfulness, a loyalty to Hesed. Ruth was committed to Naomi, to Naomi's people, even Naomi's God, even in the afterlife, in verse 17. And, and when she was seeking a husband, if that was even what she was really doing, uh, she was seeking a husband not for her own advantage. If you read the story, um, you get the impression that this guy is quite a few years older than Ruth. That's probably not the most appealing to a young lady, to marry a guy maybe 20, 25 years older than her. She's seeking the benefit of Naomi. She's thinking of Naomi and how to make sure Naomi's continued to be provided for. And what about Boaz? He's contrasted with this unnamed kinsman in chapter 4. It is no, um, it is no, what's the word? There's a reason that this kinsman redeemer goes unnamed in the book of Ruth. Because he had a duty to fulfill, and he did have an obligation, and he failed in it. So in this, the history of Scripture, his name doesn't even get mentioned. Now, perhaps that was actually to kind of protect him and his family, because here this book was read by Israel for years and years and hundreds of years and, there, and now thousands of years, um, and lineage uh, is an important thing. Uh, to Jewish people. But he goes unnamed. Uh, Boaz is willing to sacrifice his own means and way of life for two impoverished widows. Uh, he didn't have anything to gain by marrying Ruth. There, she wasn't bringing any property in. She was, I, mean, I guess this little piece of land that Naomi had that apparently had gone uh, unused for many years that no one was really concerned about. Naomi was this widow. So two widows he's taking on. He's willing to sacrifice his own means and way of life for them. That's Hesed. But we also see this aspect of Hesed that is even bold and daring. Maybe even risky. But is the bold, daring, and risky for self-gain? No, Hesed is always for others' benefits. It's always for others' benefits. Look at Ruth. She ventures out in, in the fields to glean. Listen, um, she risked ostracism, maybe even physical abuse. There's a reason that Boaz had to specifically command his men, leave her alone, right? And here she is, this Moabite. I'm sure she wasn't looked too fondly upon. All these Israelites, and here's this Moabite, this bad history with Israel. But then she ventures even special gleaning privileges. It says in verse 6 of chapter 2, The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said in verse 7, Please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. All right, so she's asking really almost special permission to do something, and, and because she didn't have to ask for that. But she ventures to ask if she can do that. She had the right 
but she was bold enough to discuss it with him. Then she ventures this nighttime visit to the threshing floor. She doesn't know how Boaz is going to react. And what if she and Boaz were discovered? How would that look? But Naomi's lineage was on the line. The concern is for Naomi and her lineage. So she was bold. What about Boaz? He's bold to bring the matter into the open square, right into public. He doesn't know how the kinsman is going to act. He might end up losing Ruth here. Not only that, he ventured to marry a non-Israelite. Now that's risky. But Hesed isn't bound by local custom. It adheres to God's law and nothing else. He also was bold and ventured to take on two needy widows who offered little in return. Hesed is also according to God's ways. Ruth followed custom and law in the field while gleaning, and she didn't try to get any more than she knew it was okay for her to get. She might have tried to seduce Boaz on the threshing floor to enhance her plan of getting what she wanted, but she didn't do that. Nothing in the text indicates anything impure happened. In fact, the wording in the Hebrew suggests they were pure. She also didn't try to circumvent the other relative having a claim on her. She accepted and trusted God with the outcome. She relied on the Lord. Well, God wants us to have the same hesed that we see displayed here in the lives of the saints. Look at Micah. Chapter 6. In verse 6 it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And here's a response. He has told you, O man, What is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love Hesed and to walk humbly with your God. He wants us to embrace the Hesed in its fullness, even love it and have it displayed in our lives. Look at Hosea chapter 6. In verse 4, the Lord says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as a light. For I desire hesed and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The, the interesting thing here is in verse 4, God actually uses the word hesed. He says, your hesed is like a morning cloud. So they were supposed to have hesed. He's even pointed it out here. But he's saying, basically, your hesed even isn't hesed. You you show glimpses of it, but it's like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away. It just kind of fades away, just dissipates. What is he saying? I desire hesed, verse 6. I want the real hesed, not your ritual. Not the stuff that dissipates, not the stuff that goes away. I really want it, and I want to see it. 
And I want to see it last. That's what I want. Well, as we receive God's Hesed, it transforms us. It pours through us. And when Hesed is given from one person to another, uh, there is actually a, mutu- a, mu- ah, a mutuality. Man, that's hard. Mutuality. There we go. There's a mutuality anticipated. We see this in a couple places. Look at 2 Samuel 9. This is after uh, Saul's house has basically been obliterated. There's no one left that they know of. David is greatly upset by this. His best friend Jonathan is dead. He says in verse 1, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him hesed for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the Hesed of God to him? And what did they find out? Yes, there is one, a disabled one, Mephibosheth. But David wanted to show not just his Hesed, but God's Hesed. We also see this in Joshua 2. The story of Rahab. The spies go out to spy the land. Rahab hides them. And she says to them, in verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please, swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt hesed with you, you also will deal hesed with my father's house and give me a sure sign. What's their response? The men said to her, verse 14, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal hesed and faithfully with you. See, there's a mutuality going on. As hesed is given, it's expected to be received back between people. Our hesed to others, look, we need to give it to others, whether they give it back or not. Because that's what God does for us. He gives it to us. He expects a response, but we don't always give it. We should be loyal. We should be faithful. And we should have a steadfastness about us. We should be bold for the kingdom. So what is our response to God's hesed? Well, of the 250 times or so that it appears in the Old Testament, over half of those occur in the Psalms. And the Psalms, as you know, was basically the corporate worship book for Israel. It is an attribute of God worthy of our praise to him. Let's look at just a couple Psalms. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his hesed endures forever. Let Israel say, his hesed endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, 
his hesed endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his hesed endures forever. What are they doing there? Praising the Lord for his hesed. Look at Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his hesed endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his hesed endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his hesed endures forever. And every single verse, the second stanza is what? His hesed endures forever. An entire psalm talking about hesed. And what does this suggest? Well, starting in verse 9, excuse me, 5, it talks about creation. Then it goes down to the redemption of Israel in verses 10 through 15. It suggested all God's actions from the creation of the world to the redemption of Israel from Egypt and beyond testify to his hesed. A few more psalms. Psalm 33, verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the hesed of the Lord. Three chapters later, Psalm 36 says in verse 5, Your hesed, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of deep, your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. So what are we supposed to do with this? Well, Psalm 106 says we're supposed to recall his hesed. You can write that down and look at it later. Psalm 13 says we're supposed to trust in it. Trust in his hesed. So close to this attribute of God, reveal God to us, that we are told to trust his hesed. In Psalm 92, if you turn there, we're told to proclaim it. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your hesed in the morning and your faithfulness by night. In Psalm 59, we're not just told to proclaim it, we're told to proclaim it with singing. So when the worship team comes back up, I expect to hear you guys proclaiming it, all right? And we're also supposed to proclaim it with rejoicing, Psalm 31. Well, let me conclude with a few thoughts here. Psalm 107, verse 43 says, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the hesed of the Lord. I suggest and encourage you to do that in your quiet time today or tomorrow. Consider the hesed of the Lord. Well, hesed does require a response. When God displays it, he calls us to respond, sometimes in repentance, sometimes in faith, sometimes in adoration. But a, re- a response is required. The, the theological importance of this word can't be understated, can't be overstated, I should say. Um, the idea is the attitude which, which both parties have towards one another in covenant ought to be something that is seen nowhere else. Think of Christ's love for his bride. What's being emphasized 
an unchanging love that can be utterly relied upon by those who are loved by God. This covenant relationship with God. Think back to Exodus 34. He doesn't just have Hesed. It says he abounds in Hesed. It's overflowing and overflowing and overflowing. Lamentations 3 says, The Hesed of the Lord never ceases. And we see Hesed supremely displayed in sending his own son. That is the pinnacle of Hesed, that he would send his own son. He gains nothing from that, but he gains all of us. That's Hesed. And this is what he gives to us. So don't turn away from it. We need to receive it. We need to rejoice in it. We need to praise him for it. We need to let Hesed fill our life. Because if, if covenant is a key aspect of Hesed, then those of us who are married, we're in covenant. And we need, out of anyone, to be displaying that Hesed towards our spouse. Whether it's reciprocated or not, we should have Hesed. Let it fill your life. Let it be on display for the glory of God to others in your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God, that you do pour out your hesed upon us over and over and over, that you abound with it, that you overflow with it, and that it is something special that you give to us, God, as your children. Lord, help us to abound with it as well. Not just to be okay with the average but to go above and beyond, God, to do what you would do. Lord, we love you, but we don't always forgive us for that. We thank you, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning. Lord, forgive us for falling short. Continue to pour out your hesed upon us. We thank you, Lord, that we have a relationship with you that far exceeds anything else, Lord, that we can have. May that, Lord, may we put that relationship above all else. We thank you, Lord. Amen.